There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. Some of you need to hear that right at the beginning of the sermon. Some of you are carrying the weight of guilt and shame because of things that you have done and you're wondering how God could love someone like you. And some of you feel like failures. You feel like failure, failure as a parent. You feel like a failure in your marriage. You feel like a failure as a student, as a teenager, as a child, as a disciple. And you wonder how in the world God could love you. Surely he must be sick of you by now, right? Well, who hasn't felt like this at some point? All of us. So if you're here today and you're discouraged and you're downcast because of things that you have done or things that you haven't done, and you're wondering why God puts up with you, you're wondering if he even likes you, let me give you some good news. There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. Such good news for people like us. And this is exactly what Peter is going to need by the time we get to the end of chapter 14. So turn in your Bibles to Mark's gospel, chapter 14. Peter is going to totally blow it in our passage today. And the weight of his sin, the shame and the guilt is going to overwhelm him so much that by the time we get to the end of this chapter, he's going to be crying like a baby. Mark chapter 14, verse 53, hear the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So after all the disciples ran away in fear like we saw last week, Jesus is then carted off by the guards who came to arrest him, and they are taking him to see the high priest, who was the, the highest uh, uh, spiritual leader in the land at the time, the high priest. And all the religious leaders are there. Now, keep in mind, this is in the middle of the night. They have all gathered. Someone's got some coffee going because they're going to need it. And they've gathered because they want to take care of this Jesus problem once and for all. Jesus was a threat to them and a threat to the religious system that they had established. He was a threat to the religious leaders because Jesus dared to preach the preposterous idea that common and ordinary and broken and messy people could be godly. Jesus criticized these so-called perfect religious leaders, and he welcomed with open arms the imperfect, non-religious people who couldn't get their act together. And the religious folks did not like this at all. And so Jesus had to go. we got to get rid of this guy. 
But notice, too, that Peter is following them. Yes, Peter ran off like a chicken when all the disciples fled, but here he is. We like to give Peter a lot of grief because he's always messing up in the Bible, always having to stick his foot into his mouth, but here he is. Peter will pull a classic Peter move in a moment and totally deny that he knows Jesus, but at least he's here now. The other disciples are long gone. All of the other disciples are nowhere to be found. But Peter follows the crowd because he wants to see what's going to happen to his Lord. And so Peter follows them into the courtyard of the high priest and he begins warming himself around a fire. Meanwhile, the religious leaders are upstairs trying to scrape together some sort of incriminating testimony against Jesus, but they can't find any. They wanted to find a reason to put Jesus to death, but they had no dirt on him. They found some people, but their testimonies did not add up. The witnesses were all contradicting each other, so they had nothing to go on. And so a few people brought up that, hey, we heard him say that he will destroy the temple in three days and and build it anew. And maybe somebody else said, no, he said two days. No, I think he said one day. They couldn't even get that right. And what is Jesus doing during all of this? He's silent. He's not trying to defend himself. He's not going into self-justification mode. He's quiet. And he's quietly waiting for his father's will to play out in his life. Everyone is running their mouth. Everyone is talking. And yet Jesus is silent. And this astounds the high priest. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So everyone is busy running their mouths, making accusations, slandering Jesus on Facebook, telling lies, asking questions. And yet Jesus is silent. Just as the prophet Isaiah had predicted some 700 years before, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Please don't take the silence of Jesus to be weakness or fear. Jesus is willingly laying down his life. He's in control. He is not giving up. He is not giving in. He's not scared. His silence is actually fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. But Jesus does finally speak. When the high priest finally asks Jesus if he is the Messiah, then Jesus responds. And Jesus tells him that he is the Messiah and that they will see him coming in judgment one day. 
When Jesus refers to himself in verse 62 as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, he is alluding to two Old Testament passages. Daniel 7.13, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. He's also alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So by alluding to these two passages, Jesus is revealing his identity to the religious leaders. He's answering their question. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. I am the one who will judge the entire world. And every person there knew what Jesus was saying. All the religious leaders knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. So when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, they knew what he was saying. They knew that he was connecting himself with Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes from God's throne, comes from the clouds of God's glory to judge the world. They get what Jesus is saying. Jesus is claiming to be God here. He's claiming to be the judge of the world. The irony, of course, is that the real judge is being judged by these spiritually blind religious leaders who should have known better. So Jesus tells them that they will see him coming on the clouds of glory. And as I argue back in Mark 13, I believe that Jesus is referring to what happened in 70 AD when God used the Roman emperor Titus to destroy Jerusalem. So some 30 to 40 years From this moment, when Jesus is speaking with them, the religious leaders would see Jesus as the judge, as the Son of Man, coming and utterly destroying the temple, utterly destroying the religious system and the city of Jerusalem. And so how do the religious leaders respond to Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man? Mark tells us in verse 63 that the high priest tore his clothes because he believed that Jesus was blaspheming. And then Mark tells us that they all condemned him to death. They all said, he needs to die. And then they began to spit on him. And they threw something over his head and hit him and told Jesus, prophesy, tell us which one of us just hit you. And then they began beating him over and over. Now, why did Jesus allow this? Why did he allow them to spit on him? Do you know how humiliating that is to have someone walk up to you and spit in your face? And why did he allow them to mock him and to beat him repeatedly? Answer, because he loves you. Jesus endured all of this for you. Make it personal this morning. Jesus endured all of this for you. He was falsely accused for you. He was spit on for you. He was mocked for you. He was beat up for you. Every false word, every lie, every loogie spit into his face, every punch, all for you, for you, and because of your sin. And that's why there is nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving you. But sometimes we don't think God loves us. 
Do you ever feel like God doesn't love you? Do you ever feel like your failures actually change God's feelings for you? You keep messing up over and over and you think, surely he's sick of me by now. I do. I think my failures, sometimes I think my failures and my sin change God's feelings for me. I know it's wrong, but I am so tempted to believe that Jesus is that fickle. And that's why I need the gospel every day. Sadly, many Christians are like me. We make the focus of the Christian life all about us and not about Jesus. And when we do this, we naturally see our many failures and then we slip into believing that God's love for us, His affections for us, start to fade. Surely Peter struggled with this, especially after what he does next. Peter is going to hear a little girl say to him, liar, liar, pants on fire, as he warms himself around a fire. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Notice the contrast here. Jesus was silent. No self-justification, no defense, no self-preservation. And Peter goes into full self-justification mode here. As he is warming himself around the fire, a servant girl recognizes him as one of the disciples. And so she calls Peter out. Liar, liar, pants on fire. But Peter denies it. He claims to be in the dark concerning this accusation. And then what does Peter do next? He slowly walks away from the fire, away from the accusation, and he heads over to the gateway. But guess who's waiting for him there? A rooster. Just as Jesus had said back in Mark 14, verse 30, Peter would deny him three times before a rooster crowed twice. So this is crow number one. This rooster had been appointed from the foundations of the world to be there this night at that spot and to help assist Peter in his sanctification. And so Peter tries to get away from the girl, but God has a rooster ready to confront Pete. And the girl is persistent. She starts telling everybody that Peter is one of the disciples. And again, Peter denies it. But Peter has forgotten something that's giving him away. It's his accent. Peter was from up north in Galilee, and the Galileans had accents. In the north, the Galileans spoke Aramaic, which was the common language that everybody spoke in the day, but they had a certain twang to their accents. 
So think maybe somebody from Alabama or Georgia or Texas. And so the Judeans in the south made fun of their northern cousins for kind of being these backwoods rednecks with these accents. And so it's Peter's accent here in the middle of the night that's giving him away. It would be like someone from the south saying, I ain't from Texas. I don't know what you're talking about. That's Peter here. I ain't from Galilee. I don't know what you're talking about. But he gets called out in verse 70. Because they say to him, certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. It was his accent that gave him away. And that's when Peter steps up his self-justification game. In verse 71, Peter will move on from denial to flat out calling a curse down on Jesus. Peter actually cursed and swore they didn't know Jesus when they asked him. In fact, Peter most likely cursed Jesus. He wasn't calling a curse down on himself. Peter was actually cursing Jesus, calling a curse down on his Lord. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, R.T. France explains Peter's curse. He says, its meaning is to curse someone or something other than oneself. In this context, the natural object to be understood is Jesus, so that Mark portrays Peter as voluntarily cursing Jesus. This understanding of the text, which Christian interpreters naturally find unwelcome, is the most probable sense of Mark's words, though he has avoided too blatant an offense by leaving the object, that's Jesus, the object of the verb, unstated. Peter's actually cursing Jesus. He's calling a curse down on his Lord. The irony is that in a few short hours, Jesus would go to the cross where he would bear the curse of the law for sinners, messy sinners, just like Peter. Peter would get his wish in time. Jesus would be accursed for Peter. Jesus would be accursed on the cross for Peter's sins. Here's the good news, Grace. Jesus, the law maker, became a law breaker in order to declare us as law keepers. Amazing. It was through his law keeping, his perfect life, his sinless life, that we become law keepers. The law maker became a law breaker on the cross in order to declare us law keepers. The law giver becomes the curse bearer. This is the gospel. And so when Peter was saying, curse you, Jesus, Jesus' reply was, yes, yes, I will bear the curse of the law for you, Peter, because I love you and I love all the messy people that my father has given. And it's as if Mark couldn't record the following words in verse 71. Mark couldn't record these words. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on Jesus and to swear. Mark couldn't bring himself to record those words. So he leaves the object, which is Jesus, out of the sentence. And instead, Mark writes, but he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on him and to swear. Mark just couldn't type those words up that he cursed Jesus. Not because Peter was his mentor, but because of Jesus. 
Mark just couldn't type up that one of Jesus' disciples would actually call a curse down on Jesus. And so he simply writes him. But what's more staggering than that is that Mark records the story in his gospel. Scholars believe that Mark was personally discipled by Peter. Peter discipled Mark, and so Mark's gospel is an eyewitness account straight from Peter. And Peter actually tells Mark this story. I mean, if I'm Peter, I leave out the story where I curse Jesus. I might tell Mark that Jesus called me Satan once, or even that I denied Jesus three times. But to go and tell Mark, hey, bro, remember that story about me denying Jesus three times? There's actually more. I didn't just deny Jesus. I actually cursed him right there in front of all those unbelievers and within earshot of Jesus because he was there and he saw me and he heard it right there in front of my Lord. I actually said, curse you, Jesus. Be cursed by God. I don't think I would add that detail if I were Peter. But Peter does. He tells Mark to add that part to his gospel. And as soon as Peter curses Jesus, The rooster foreordained from the foundation of the world crowed yet again, just as Jesus said. This is crow number two. This is the second rooster crow, and it got to Peter. This crow reminded him about what Jesus had said earlier that night, and so Peter breaks down, and he begins to weep. So let me ask you, what do you do when you blow it like Peter? What do you do when you've failed and when you have flat out denied what you believe? When your actions contradict everything that you believe in your core, in your heart of hearts. It's true, we all deny our Lord in little ways, but what do you do when the denial contradicts everything that you have stood for, everything that you have ever believed? Is there a way back? Is there a way back home again? How does the Lord deal with failures? Lloyd Ogilvie addresses this in his book, Asking God Your Hardest Questions. He says this, But the basic message of the story is this, The Lord's love does not fail, however much we fail Him. Peter had built his whole relationship with Jesus Christ on his assumed capacity to be adequate. That's why he took his denial of the Lord so hard. His strength, loyalty, and faithfulness were his self-generated assets of discipleship. The fallacy in Peter's mind was this. He believed his relationship was dependent on his consistency in producing the qualities he thought had earned him the Lord's approval. He constantly tripped over his own ego. If adequacy is the basis of being loved, what do you do when you are inadequate? The point is that he never allowed Jesus to love him profoundly. Many of us face the same problem. We project onto the Lord our own measured standard of acceptance. Our whole understanding of him is based in a quid pro quo of bartered love. He will love us as if we are good, moral, and intelligent and diligent. But we have turned the tables. We try to live so that he will love us rather than living because he has already loved us. The Lord's love 
grace does not fail however much we fail him. Let me say it again. The Lord's love does not fail however much we fail him. And so if you live as if how you act and how you behave determines how God feels about you, then what do you do when you blow it? If you live as if how you act and how you obey, how you behave, as if that determines how God feels about you, then what in the world do you do when you blow it like Peter? You have no hope, right? Because when you live this way, it's all riding on you. So let me ask you, have you projected onto the Lord your own standard of acceptance? Are you bartering with him? Are you trying to live so that he will love you rather than living because he already has loved you? If so, let me stop you right there. Let me remind you, there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. You can't do anything to face his love for you. It is impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by our failures. It's impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by our sin and our rebellion and our mistakes and our failures. God has been dealing with sinful people since Genesis 3, so he's not phased by our failures. He wasn't phased by Peter's actions and words. In fact, God's promises are comfortable in our mess. God's promises are comfortable just plopping down into the middle of the ugly situations that we create. God's promises do not mind rolling up their sleeves and getting dirty. And so God's love and God's promises that we read in his word are not threatened or intimidated by all of our shortcomings. In fact, it is in the context of our greatest fears and failures that God's love goes on display. And we see this most clearly at the cross. So yes, this church is full of sinners. And it's full of messy people. And it's full of insecure people. And it's full of scared people. And full of people like Peter and every other flawed person in the Bible. But we take great comfort that Jesus came for people like us. He came for people like us, and that's comforting. He came for the whosoevers and the just anyones and the not a chancers like you and me and Peter. Mike Iaconelli says, what landed Jesus on the cross was the preposterous idea that common, ordinary, broken, screwed up people could be godly. What drove Jesus' enemies crazy were his criticisms of the perfect religious people and his acceptance of the imperfect non-religious people. The shocking implication of Jesus' ministry is that anyone can be spiritual. Scandalous? Maybe. Maybe truth is scandalous. Maybe the scandal is that all of us are in some condition of not-togetherness, even those of us who are trying to be godly. Maybe we're all a mess. Not only sinful messy, but inconsistent messy, up and down messy, in and out messy. Now I believe, now I don't messy. I get it, now I don't get it messy. I understand, uh, now I don't understand messy. That's Peter here, and that's Peter all the way through the Bible. 
inconsistent messy, up and down messy, in and out messy, now I believe, now I don't messy. I get it. Now I don't get it messy. I understand. Uh, Now I don't understand messy Peter. And remember, it is precisely our mess that is the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption in our lives. The all things of Romans 8.28 includes our mess, our sins, our fears, and our failures. Our family drama and listen, who doesn't have it, right? If you're sitting there thinking, it's just our family that's messed up. We're all, I'm calling us all out here. We're all messed up. Doesn't it make you feel better? Everyone's family is messed up and has drama. Our family drama, our dysfunctional families are the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption and to work for our good and his glory. Jesus specializes in joining our family drama and bringing good out of it. He can plop down in the middle of your family drama and say, I can work with this. I can work with this. Jesus is thrilled to enter your pain and your mess and your junk and your ugly family situations and to work in such a way that it will result in your good and the glory of his name. So trust him. Your sin and your mess and your drama is no match for him. No match for his promises. Jesus is the redeemer and he specializes in redeeming awful situations. So trust him. It takes time. It takes time. But you can trust him. Find a promise in his word and hang on for dear life. And preach it to yourself. And then rest. And rest knowing that even if you don't hang on to his promises, even if you doubt, even if you struggle to trust, even if you struggle to believe his promises, Jesus is going to redeem your mess anyway. He's that good. He's that kind. He's that merciful. He's that sovereign. Because it's not riding on you. It's not even riding on your ability to trust his promises. That should set some of you free. Puritan William Guthrie said, God is the hope of his people and not their own holiness. If they intend honestly and long seriously to be like unto him, many failings should not weaken their hope and confidence. Jesus is our hope, not our holiness. Our many failings should not weaken our hope because who did Jesus come for? Sinners. You see, we're just like the disciples. They swore up and down to Jesus that they would never fall away. Peter swore up and down to Jesus that he would not deny Jesus. And so we're just like them. We're just like the disciples. We're good at making promises, but we're even better at breaking them, aren't we? Of course, there is nothing wrong in wanting to be holy. So please hear me out. There is nothing wrong in wanting to be holy, in wanting to be obedient, in wanting to please the Lord, in wanting to renew our commitment to the Lord. And we do that here every week. We should desire to live godly lives. We should desire to be who we are called to be as God's people. We should long serious to be like unto him, as William Guthrie says. We will fail, but we will not let that weaken our hope. If you failed, 
pig time, whatever it is that means for you, don't let that weaken your hope. If you've blown it, made a mess of your life, don't let that weaken your hope. Because the story does not end here. And that's where hope comes in. Peter's story does not end with a rooster echoing in his ears. Peter's story does not end at this charcoal fire. We never see Peter again in Mark's gospel after his denial. It's like, poof, he's gone. He disappears. But this story is not over. Peter does get mentioned by the angel that appeared to the women after Jesus' resurrection. Mark 16, 7, the angel said, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Peter's story, though he drops out of Mark's gospel at this point, Peter's story is not over. There's another charcoal fire where Peter will look Jesus in the eye and he will not feel shame. John records it in his gospel. Jesus appeared to Peter on the shore after his resurrection and he restored Peter and reassured Peter of his love. So Peter's story does not end in Mark 14. His story does not end with a rooster. His story does not end with all the lying and swearing up and down by the fire that he did not know Jesus. No, Peter's story ended and began anew when he saw Jesus on the beach. And it ended and began anew when he died and saw his Savior face to face again. And the same is true for us. Our stories do not end after our failures. Our stories do not end after we have totally blown it and screwed up our lives and the lives of others. And so understand this, Christian. You are not the sum total of your failures. You are not the sum total of your failures. The gospel frees us from seeing ourselves as either the sum total of our failures or the sum total of our successes. As believers, our identity is now linked and rooted in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. His perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection is our life now. Your identity is now rooted not in what you have done, either successes or failures, but in what Jesus has done for you. Not what you've done that's bad, not what you've done that's good, not what you have done at all. It's all wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for you. Jesus delights to be merciful to people who have made a total mess of their lives. Jesus loves to shower us with his mercy. Will you let him restore you today? Will you let him heal you right now? Let him calm the storm that has been raging inside of you. Feel his tender, warm embrace today. Look into his eyes and see that incredible compassion that he has for you in the middle of your mess. Yeah, you've made a mess of your life. You've destroyed a lot of relationships. You've lived in these destructive patterns. But Jesus will have you. Maybe nobody else wants to be around you, but Jesus will have you. If you've made a mess of your life in any way, come home to Jesus today. Maybe you're just cynical all the time. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you feel like life is hopeless. Maybe you're angry about 
how life has played out. And so maybe you're blaming everyone else in your life. Maybe you've totally screwed up your life and it feels hopeless and pointless. Jesus will have you. He can heal you right now. Jesus will have you. There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. Two weeks ago, Heather and I went to a conference in L.A. and our family down there watched our kids and so we dropped them off on Friday afternoon and then went to the conference. And then on Sunday morning, we went to church where a lot of Heather's family attends and we're going to pick our kids up, like in the kids' wing, we thought, after the church service was over. And so as we walked in, I had my eyes closed. One of the pastors was reading scripture. We're all standing and all of a sudden, I feel someone run up to me. And I look down and it's Sephora our little four-year-old girl. And she's just squeezing my leg like a python. And so I pick her up, and she just buries her face in my chest, and she's hugging on me like a python, like I could have let go, and she just would have clung to me. She won't let go. She won't look up. She's buried, embracing me, just happy to see Daddy, and Daddy is happy to see her. And then we sit down, and she's sitting with us, And there's a break in the service where you can get up and greet one another. And then it happens again. I shake someone's hand and I feel this python squeeze on my leg. And I hear someone say, Daddy. And it's Piper, our six-year-old. And the same thing happens. And I pick her up and she hugs me and squeezes me like a python. It was glorious. As a dad, you live for that stuff. We hadn't seen them in two days. And they just wanted mom and dad. And in that moment, I thought, This is how God feels about us. And this is how we feel about him. And that's what Peter did when he saw Jesus on the shore after the resurrection. John tells us in his gospel that Peter saw Jesus on the shore and he just jumped out of the boat. He didn't row the boat in. He jumped out of the boat and swam ashore so he could be with Jesus. And that's what it's going to be like when we see Jesus We'll just run up to him and hug him and squeeze him like a python and not let go. And we will not be thinking of our sins and we will not be thinking of our failures and all the mess that we created in our lives. We'll be consumed with him and he with us. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, Poor sinners who are full of the thoughts of their own sins. No, not. They don't know how they shall be able at the latter day to look Christ in the face when they shall first meet with him. But they may relieve their spirits against this care and fear by Christ's conduct toward his disciples, who had sinned so against him. Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. Whose heart would not this overcome? I will come again and receive you unto myself, says Christ, so that where I am, you may be also. That last part of his speech gives the reason of it and shows his entire affection. It is as if Jesus had said, the truth is I cannot live without you and I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am that we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me nor my Father's company if I do not have you with me. My heart is so set upon you and if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. That's how Jesus feels about us right now. He's saying, I cannot live without you. I won't be quiet until I have you where I am. No matter what you've done, 
no matter how bad you have failed on that day, you will be able to look Jesus in the eyes without fear, without shame. And while you wait for that day, guess what? Jesus can't wait. He can't wait. He, he didn't wake up today, but when we woke up, he was already saying, today, I can't wait to be with him. He can't wait to be with you. He can't live without you. He will never be quiet until he has you with him. And so no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've failed, today you can look Jesus in the eyes without fear, without shame. You can run to Jesus this morning right now and he will love you. You can run and feel his warm, tender arms embracing you. You, inconsistent messy you, up and down, messy you, in and out, messy you. Now I believe, now I don't, messy you. I get it, now I don't get it, messy you. I understand, uh, now I don't understand, messy you can come home today, now. There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are overwhelmed that you are this kind and this merciful to people who choose sin every day. We love you, but we love sin too. We're so fickle. And you're so kind and so merciful and so loving and gracious. And so we are just humbled this morning. We want to sing about your great work for us on the cross. That you would save rebels like us. It's amazing. It's amazing. Amen.